are going to continue this morning teaching our way through Matthew 24, because we've been going verse by verse through the book of Matthew. But before we get there, we have to talk a little bit about GCA as a church and what we've got coming up in the months ahead. Because we have a few sort of unique distinctions as a church that I think are strictly biblical, and yet for some reason in this day and age they seem odd. I come out of a church in Los Angeles that treated the communion, the Lord's Supper, as a fairly light thing, as a fairly slipshod thing that you could participate in anytime, anywhere, at will, for any reason. We were also taught, Tom and I were, that through the communion we could expect miracles and all kinds of things. So when I got here to uh, Middle Tennessee and began not only studying the Bible more in depth, but began teaching it, I became very serious about the responsibility that goes with teaching God's Word. And there are really only two places in the New Testament where you see God directly intervene and kill people. There's only two places. One is in the book of Acts, when there were a couple people who lied about their giving. So we're going to take up an offering now. No, that's a joke. That's totally a joke. That's completely a joke. But the other place, surprisingly, in the New Testament where God directly intervenes and kills people, you read about it in Paul's writing to the church at Corinth. Among all the problems that the church in Corinth had, Paul said, there are some among you who are sick and some among you who are dead because you have done the communion so wrongly. In fact, Paul's larger theology about it is that he says that the reason that God did that, put physical sickness on some people, even killed some people, was to avoid the final judgment that was coming. So he put temporal judgments on them in order to stop them from rebelling against him so that they wouldn't endure the final judgment. So here's a good demonstration of God using physical judgment as actually an act of mercy, an act of grace to avoid final judgment in any case. When I read that, it really struck me because I realized that the way I had been taught growing up in the Lutheran church and then the way I'd been taught in the church in Los Angeles really never took into account what Paul had to say about the communion service and that Paul really treated it as a very, very serious thing, not something to be treated lightly or to be trifled with. And so the more that I studied out Communion, I came to the conclusion that it is an annual, once a year, memorial to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And that's the only thing that the Bible teaches about it. You don't find anywhere in the Bible where a weekly Lord's Supper or a monthly Lord's Supper or a quarterly Lord's Supper, you don't find any place where that is specifically laid out or prescribed anywhere in Scripture. But you do find that the early church kept the Passover. Now, the Lord's Supper actually occurred on the Passover just prior to Christ's Passion. In fact, it was so significant that he said to them, with great longing, I have longed to keep this Passover with you. 
And at that particular Passover, Jesus changed their focus from their deliverance from Egypt, which is where the Passover began. If you don't know where the word Passover comes from, it's from the fact that in order to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt, God brought a series of ten plagues onto the Egyptians, most of which he protected Israel from. God would bring plagues like darkness, a darkness for three days on Egypt where nobody would even get up out of their bed because it was so dark. Meanwhile, in Goshen, light. And so God was separating his people from their Egyptian captors through these plagues that he was bringing about. Well, the final of those plagues was the death of all the firstborn. The death angel swept through Egypt and killed all the firstborn. But the Israelites were told, and only the Israelites were told, that if they took up a lamb and kept it in their house for a couple days, a spotless, unblemished lamb, and then on the night of Passover, the father of the house was required to take that lamb and slice its throat and take the blood and catch it in a bowl and then take the branch of hyssop, which acted like a paintbrush essentially, and dip it in the blood and put the blood on the doorpost, on the lentil, around the door of the house. And that night, when the death angel passed through Egypt, if he saw the sacrificial blood of the lamb on your door, he would pass over your house as he was killing all the firstborn. As the Israelites left Egypt, they were told every year to memorialize that event. The very night that that all occurred is the night that the Egyptians said to the Israelites, just go, just get out, just go. The beginning of the Exodus as a result of that moment. So every year, the nation of Israel would observe the Passover, and it was a memorial to their deliverance out of Egypt. Jesus, on the night that he kept his final Passover with his disciples, said to them, I've desired to keep this Passover with you. And then he changed their focus. Instead of remembering and memorializing their deliverance from Egypt, he said, now remember me. Now, when you do this, think of me. Because there was a new deliverance at foot. He was about to deliver them from their sin. He was about to deliver them from the condemnation and judgment of God. He was about to hang on the cross at Golgotha and deliver them into salvation through his blood rather than lamb blood on the door. So all the types and the shadows all led up to him. So the early church, naturally being predominantly Jewish, continued to keep Passover and they would in the midst of their Passover, remember Christ. And so what we call the Lord's Supper, because it was the night that he ate and instituted the communion, we call it the Lord's Supper, we call it the communion, but technically among the early church, it was also Passover. Well, 2,000 years have gone by. And in those 2,000 years, and in the Gentilization of the Christian church, Gentilization is the word I just made up. I'll be making up other words this morning. You might want to keep a list. In the making the church more Gentile, we have forgotten the very Jewish roots of the New Testament. 
And we have forgotten why these feasts and memorials were instituted. And so in many churches, the communion is tacked on to the end of the service every week with no thought to why. Nobody teaches why. Nobody explains what the memorial is about. And a lot of extraneous teaching is attached to it, like, as I mentioned earlier, the idea that there was healing in the communion and that you could expect miracles as part of the communion service. And so Paul had to tell the Corinthians, which was a church that was a mixture of Jews and Gentiles, he had to explain to them that in keeping the feast, they were keeping it so wrongly that God was judging them. And one of the ways that they were keeping it so wrongly was that they were not discerning the body of Christ in the midst of it all. In other words, they were just doing it haphazardly. They were just tacking it on to the end of their meals without giving any thought to what it was, which is exactly and precisely how most churches do it, just haphazardly, tack it on to the end of the service, just do it rote, don't think about what it is, don't think about Christ. Well, as we established GCA 15 years ago, we came to the conviction that annual communion service was the biblical model, and that's what we've done. And there have been people who have questioned that decision, people who have come from other traditions, who look at us and say, why do you only do it once a year? My church does it once a month or whatever else. And then when they hear the argumentation, when they hear the biblical argumentation, they end up saying, oh, I get it. I said all that to say this. We're in a really weird calendar year. Our tradition here at GCA has been that we keep our annual communion on the Sunday after Passover, which is usually Easter Sunday. Easter Sunday then became the day on which we did our communion, which expanded out to homecoming weekend. And so we have people who come in from all over the country to come spend the weekend with us, and as part of that, we would have our annual communion service. But I have always emphasized, as I just did this morning, that the communion is a memorial to Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, importantly, the death part, and that it corresponds with Passover. So this year, because our calendars are so very weird, Easter is a month before Passover, which is just weird, because Passover happens before Easter most of the time. Now, Passover is determined on a lunar calendar, in other words, by the cycles of the moon. And so when they see the first bit of the first crescent of the first light of a new moon, that's the beginning of a month. And then, of course, 14 days later would be a full moon, and so Passover on the 14th of Nisan always falls on a full moon. And it is that lunar cycle of the moon that determines the date of Passover to this very day. Meanwhile, in the Gentilization of Christianity, there I've used my word again, 325, there was a council called by Constantine, a council of the churches known as the Council of Nicaea. They determined that because the Bible does say that Jesus rose on a Sunday, that Easter Sunday, or that Easter should always be on a Sunday. And so they started adjusting their calendar accordingly. 
The calendar that we live under, a solar calendar based on the sun, which is why our day begins at midnight, goes till midnight. That is a sun-solar calendar. It was originally constructed by Julius Caesar, so it was known as the Julian calendar. And then later, Pope Gregory changed the calendar again, and the calendar that we're currently on is called the Gregorian calendar. You may have noticed that there was an extra day in the month of February this year. Well, that, that was Gregory's doing, based on some calculations of the Julian calendar that determined that that a year, a solar year, the time it takes for the Earth to go around the sun is 365 and a quarter days. And therefore, every four years, the Earth is a little off in its seasons. And so we adjust it with leap year. We add an extra day, and that readjusts it. But it turns out that it's not exactly mathematically 365 and a quarter. And so one of the other things the Gregorian calendar did was that any year that is divisible by four, we have a leap year, we add a day. But then if that leap year is also divisible by a hundred, you don't throw a leap year in. And that readjusts the calendar. And that's why in year 2000, 1900, 1800, any of those years, we didn't have an extra day in February, because they're constantly fiddling with the calendar to try to make it line up with the way the Earth goes around the sun. So there's that calendar. Now, on that Gregorian calendar, it was determined that Easter would always be the first Sunday after the first full moon after the spring equinox. That's how we arrive at the date for Easter each year. But then it was also standardized so that the church in specific could predict, and when I say church, I'm talking about the Roman Catholic Church here, so that they could predict when Easter was going to be every year. They didn't want to have to wait around for the Jews to decide when a month began. So they decided that they would say that the spring equinox always happens on March 21st. My birthday, September 21st, is always the first day of fall every year. Now you all know my birthday. Don't get me anything too big. And March 21st then becomes spring, which means that the first full moon after March 21st, the Sunday after that, ta-da, Easter, which means that you can predict it years in advance so that the church could keep its calendar. Meanwhile, those pesky Jews, they just refused to go along. They just said, no, we're going to stick with our lunar calendar. We're going to stick with Passover being according to the way that the lunar months fall out. And every once in a while, you'll notice that Easter and Passover get further away from each other because the church is going by that, hey, it's March 21st no matter what. And then there's a full moon. And then there's a Sunday. And that's Easter, doggone it. And the Jews continue to go by their lunar calendar. And sometimes, here's where it gets even more complicated, the Jewish lunar calendar is on a 19-year cycle where every once in a while, on particular odd numbers, they have to throw in an extra month because a lunar calendar is 360 days in a year. And so they're five days off. So every once in a while, they throw in an extra month of 30 days just to bring it around again. Otherwise, their calendar doesn't fit the seasons anymore. So you have these two different calendars constantly being adjusted. And that extra month that the Jews throw in sometimes comes just before spring. 
at the end of winter. As a consequence, their first month of the year gets thrown back a month. And so if you've got an early Easter, like we have this year, and you have a really late Passover, like we have this year, you have this strange anomaly where they line up in such a way that Easter is at the end of March and Passover doesn't start until April 22nd. Okay, why am I giving you a lesson on the calendar? Well, here's how this affects us. I have taught here for years that Easter is not a biblical thing. Yes, Jesus rose on a Sunday. As a consequence, you read in the book of Acts that the church began meeting on Sundays because that was the day of the risen Christ rather than the Jewish Sabbath. So it was one of the ways that the church made itself distinct from the practices and the habits and the traditions of the Jews and the Old Covenant. So it was sort of a new covenant distinctive that they would get together on the first day of the week. But as far as the notion of Easter, uh, the word Easter comes to us from Ishtar, not that terrible movie with Dustin Hoffman. It comes from Ishtar, who was a goddess. It is goddess worship. It is a spring fertility feast because during the winter you can't grow anything, you can't plant your crops, and then the sun would begin to come back, and it was the worship of the sun, which is why so many churches still have sunrise service. You run out there and you worship the sun coming back. The days are getting longer. In fact, the old English word for what happens at that point is that building up to Easter Sunday, the days get longer. The old English word is lengthen, which became Lent. And so I know, I laugh too. And Lent is simply the 40 days leading up to Easter, and it begins with Mardi Gras. Does anybody know what Mardi Gras means? Do you know what the definition? Fat Tuesday. Do you know why Fat Tuesday? Live it up, because tomorrow Lent starts, and you've got to give something up. So instead, Fat Tuesday is about eat as much as you can, gorge yourself, fatten yourself up, and it became a big party in New Orleans. Fat Tuesday, and then followed by Ash Wednesday. So we go from, woohoo, party in the streets, to ashes on my forehead. Now I feel sad. Now I have to give something up. Now, of course, most people who give something up for Lent end up giving up something they don't like anyway. That's it. No Brussels sprouts for me for Lent. I love God. No Brussels sprouts. Within that Lenten season, you have things then building up to Easter Sunday, things like uh, Monday, Thursday, or Good Friday, or those things. Now, I'm just telling you, go back and look it up. Just go back and read it. These are all inventions of the Roman Catholic Church. What I can tell you for certain is you find none of that in the Bible. There are no 40 days of Lent. There's no Monday, Thursday. There's no, which means Commandment Thursday, because Jesus said, I give you a new command. So they added Commandment Thursday, and then Good Friday. The evidence is that Jesus probably did not die on a Friday. But we know for a fact what the Bible does tell us is that he did raise on Sunday. So for years, I have exposed here at GCA and online these traditions because what I'm trying so hard to do is to help people strip away their traditions and get back to, but what does the Bible say? Let's build our Christianity. Let's build our faith on what the Bible actually says as opposed to tradition because Jesus himself said that the traditions of men make the word of God of no effect. And that's absolutely true because when I say things like 
Easter is not a biblical idea, people get very, very upset. About half as upset as they get when I say Christmas isn't. Then they really get upset. But think about Easter. Easter is a spring fertility feast because the days are getting longer, the sun is coming, and we want to be able to plant things, and we want fertility among ourselves and our animals. So the symbols of that holiday are fertility symbols like eggs and rabbits. Yeah, and so now we just have a great big mythical rodent who comes into our house and leaves eggs. This is all fertility stuff and has nothing to do with the Bible. Okay, I said all that to say, now we're faced with a crisis because it has always been our tradition here at GCA that we would have our annual communion service on Resurrection Sunday following Passover. And people would come in from all over, and we'd have our weekend together. So yesterday I called Jeff, called Tom, I called Alex, and I said to them, this is what we're facing, and given what we have taught, what should we do? They, without flinching to a man, said, well, we wait for Passover. And I agree. Fortunately for us, and just providentially for us, we're not having the whole homecoming weekend thing this year. So we don't have to tell our friends coming from distant areas, well, you can come and we'll have services, but you know, you'll miss the annual communion. Friday, April 22nd is Passover this year. We will have our annual communion service Sunday the 24th. Does that make sense to everybody? That was a really long version of a very short announcement. (laughs) But I want you to understand the thinking. My point, our purpose here is always, always across the board, how can we be the most biblical in these things? And because I do take these things very seriously, and I think we collectively take seriously, let's see what the Bible says, it would be like a, a denunciation of our convictions to go, well, we'll just do it on Easter anyway, because that's convenient, or because somebody's coming to town, or because I think we have to stand by our conviction, and our conviction is the communion service is a memorial of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and the early church memorialized that at Passover. That is what it is meant to be and what it is meant to do. Therefore, despite what the whole rest of the world might do, what every other church might do, we're going to continue to stand on what the Bible says. Agreed? Agreed. Okay. That was all introduction and technically does not count against my time. Yes, ma'am. Um, would it be okay then if we changed our meal um, for the day after Passover? Would that be okay? Yeah, I think that would be appropriate. Okay. Yeah. We will still be here Easter Sunday. It's a Sunday morning. We'll still be here Resurrection Sunday. But the meal, the memorial, the communion... We're going to do on the 24th of April. Make sense? Okay. Uh, I appreciate the visitors being here, several of you visitors. Thanks for being here. Uh, When I just said that all that didn't count against my time, I was joking. Because I saw a couple of you look really nervous. (laughs) Wow, is he serious? Turn to Matthew 24. We are right in the thick of it in Matthew 24. 
And last week we looked at the first of two verses that I said to you are sometimes assumed to be rapture verses. We put all the different rapture theories and concepts up on the board behind me. And we talked a little bit about what that means, the catching away of the church, which is a a definite thing, a sure thing. It's certainly what Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church, that there was a time coming when Christ himself was going to appear in the clouds exactly as he left. Those who were alive and remain are going to be instantaneously changed. And then we're going to rise to meet the Lord in the air. And Paul said, comfort one another with these words. That's what the Bible teaches. That is something that has to happen if the Bible is true. But I do not believe that in Matthew 24 anywhere that Jesus made reference to that event. Because there is far too much history prior to Matthew 24. The entire Old Testament speaks repeatedly of the gathering of Israel back to their land, reestablishing Israel around Jerusalem, and that regathering we saw last week is spoken of in the exact same language that Jesus used to talk about the the gathering of the elect, when he will send his angels, and there will be a trumpet, and he will gather his elect from the four winds. We're going to bump this morning into the second passage and verse that people use to say, well, then this must be about the rapture. And the reason that people want to find the rapture somewhere in Matthew 24 is kind of twofold. Number one, they really want Jesus to talk about it. They don't want that to just be a thing that Paul introduces, even though Paul talks about it being a mystery, mysterion, even though Paul talks about it as being something that wasn't revealed up until the time that he revealed it. People just really want Jesus to say something about it, but he doesn't. And then secondarily, there are ideas, theologies, eschatologies that say that the church has to remain here for some amount of the tribulation and the trials that happen on earth. And usually the thinking goes, well, every previous generation of the church has suffered trials and tribulations. Why should the final generation of the church assume that they're going to be removed before the trials and the tribulations. So therefore, they say the church must remain for at least some of that, and if they can find Jesus talking about a rapture in the context of the time of tribulation, then they think they have their biblical evidence to say, see, the church stays here and suffers. I don't think the church does stay here and suffer. But I know for a fact, I am convinced that Jesus isn't talking about that in Matthew 24. We left off last week at verse 31, which is the verse I just referenced. He will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. This is in the context of him explaining the sign of the Son of Man. There are going to be disturbances in the sky. There's going to be planetary upsets. The stars won't give their light. The sun and the moon are going to go dark. The moon becomes like sackcloth and ash and blood. So the whole solar system is changed. And against that very black backdrop... Jesus says, then you're going to see the sign of the Son of Man 
in the sky. Okay, that's just really frightening. Everything about that is frightening. And last week we read out of the book of Revelation and a couple other places where the prediction is that when that happens, the people who are on the earth run and hide. Which kind of makes me think, well, yeah. I mean, if the entire solar system goes dark on you, and you walk outside in the middle of the day and it's like night, and then the sign of the Son of Man returning, we don't really know what that is, some sort of sign that he says is going to be comparable to lightning that goes from the east to the west. In other words, everybody's going to see it. The sky is suddenly going to light up in such a way that everybody knows he's coming back. And what we know for certain is nobody celebrates. Nobody runs out and goes, it's Jesus, yay, good. No, instead they all run to the rocks, the caves, the dens of the earth. They cry to the rocks and say, fall on us and hide us from him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. So when Jesus comes back that time, he's coming back angry. I see very, very distinct differences between Paul saying when he comes in the clouds and gathers his church to him, you can comfort one another with those words. I don't find a lot of comfort in he's coming back in judgment, two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. In the Megiddo plain, the blood is going to rise to the reins of the horses in the slaughter that we know as Armageddon. You can't comfort anybody with that. But you can comfort people with Jesus is coming to get his church. So those are two very distinctively different appearances of Christ. In one of them, he appears in the sky and we are raised up to go meet him in the sky. In the other, his feet touch the Mount of Olives and the Mount of Olives splits open. Those are two very different events. So now verse 32. In the context of all that, Jesus teaching all this, he says, Now learn the parable of the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and it puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Basic agricultural reality. He says, you know how to read the signs of spring coming. Just the same way as you know how to go out and look at the cycles of the moon in order to know the seasons and the months. You know that when you see a fig tree and its, and its branches become tender, it's about to produce fruit. And when you see that, you know summer's coming. You know the seasons have changed. You know it's not winter anymore because growth is beginning. When I left the house today, I walked outside and there are little sprigs of grass in my yard now. And to my way of thinking, because I have a very large yard that takes a lot of maintenance, I'm not ready for spring to come yet. I would like spring to wait. I'm kind of okay with waiting a couple months. But when I walked out and saw the sprigs of grass, I knew instantly spring's coming. That's what Jesus is saying. He says to the Jewish leaders, you know enough that you can look at a fig tree. And you know that when its branches are already become tender and it puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too. When you see all these things, then you know that he, that's a reference to the Son of Man, is near, even right at the door. Okay, so what are the all these things that he's talking about? 
I think, in the immediate context, it has to do with when you see the sun and the moon go dark, when you see the stars go out, when you see the sign of the Son of Man in the sky, you know, you know it's near. You know everything that you have read about the day of the Lord, which occurs over and over again. It is recited over and over again in the Old Testament that there is a time coming when God is going to intervene in human history and that he is going to mete out judgment and righteous vengeance against a sin-soaked world. This time, this time of terrible trouble, this time of tribulation unlike anything that has ever been, ever going to be again, it's already been predicted by Jeremiah, it's been predicted by Daniel, it's been described by Joel, it's been, it's been repeated over and over. They know that it's coming and they want to know, well then when? When is that going to occur? When are people going to run for the rocks and the caves and the den? In the dens of the earth, and when are you going to restore Israel? What is the sign of your return, and when are you going to redeem Israel? And he says, when you see all these things beginning to occur, you know it's right at the door. It's coming. It's right around the corner. So then he says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass until all these things take place. Now, that verse has caused a tremendous amount of controversy and consternation among theologues of different stripes. As we have been working our way through the book of Matthew, we have talked about this word several different times. You should be familiar with it by now. The Greek word is genea. Now, there are people who say that the word generation here, the translation of genea, is a direct reference to the people who were alive on the planet at the same time that Jesus was alive on the planet. That leads to what's called preterism, or the conclusion that everything that the Bible describes has to be wrapped up by 70 AD, within the generation that was alive when Jesus was alive. Because they read that verse, usually out of context, and say, this generation by which they think it means you people who are alive right now at the same time I'm alive. We're the generation. We use the word the same way today. We talk about generation X, generation Y, generation Y not, generation what am I doing? And so we use that kind of language. And what we mean when we say generation, the modern English version, is people who are alive together at any one moment in time, a generation. That's not what the word genea means. As I've shown you time and again, this word has moved straight into the English language and becomes the root of genealogy. If you look at some of the older dictionaries, you'll find that one of the definitions for generation is people of a common descent. Which is why this same word genea is used at the very beginning of the book of Matthew in order to say that these are the Ganea, the generations of Jesus. And then they give you his genealogy, because these are people of a common descent. Now, dictionaries, of course, change year by year depending on common usage, which is why word definitions change, words get added, words fall away. And that's why I said some of the older 
dictionaries will include the definition of generation as people of a common descent. You don't see it so much in modern dictionaries, and as a consequence, people continue to confuse the Bible. All that matters is what did this word mean when Jesus spoke it? And when he spoke the word genea, it meant people of a common descent. So what is he saying here? By the way, if you want evidence and, and a half-hour extrapolation on this verse, if as I was talking, you were thinking to yourself, gosh, I wish Jim would extrapolate for about a half-hour on this verse. If you were thinking that, nobody in the room likes you. <laughs> but I have a video on our YouTube page about this verse and demonstrating how Shakespeare used the word generation and came to this conclusion. So I'll just give you the conclusion. If you want to know more, you can go read it. I think there's a Q&A on our website about it. There's definitely the video about it. But here's what Jesus was actually saying. He's talking about a time of trouble such as never was, ever would be again. A time of massive destruction. A time of God pouring out wrath against his enemies. And one of the most consistent promises throughout the Old Testament. Turn to Jeremiah 31. We'll look at just one example. But one of the most consistent promises throughout the Old Testament is that God will be faithful to Israel no matter what. Turn to Jeremiah 31, which is the passage that includes the promise of a new covenant. Jeremiah 31, start at verse 35. And importantly, again, this is in the context of the new covenant which is a covenant that God makes specifically with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Starting at verse 35. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, the God who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. Here's what he says. If this fixed order, sun, moon, stars, waves roaring, if this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. So here's another promise that God is going to be faithful to national Israel forever, and you don't get to say that God has utterly abandoned Israel, as long as there's still sun, moon, stars, waves roaring, as long as nature is working and the planet is spinning, God continues to be faithful to national Israel. And you might say, well, what about the fact that he has dispersed them? What about the fact they're out of their land? What about the fact that they have rebelled against him? They chase their foreign gods. What about the fact that he's punishing them even at this very moment? Verse 37, thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured... That's an impossibility. And if the foundations of the earth can be searched out below, equally impossible, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Okay, so God's very clear about it. Via the new covenant, he is going to reestablish national Israel. 
And that is their anticipation. When are you going to give us the kingdom? When are you going to send David's greater son? When are you going to gather us again, as all the prophets have said, and establish us back in Jerusalem? When are you going to do that? Jesus responds to them with this horrific description of a time of trouble unlike anything that has ever happened. The natural question is going to be, well, then what happens to us? And Jesus says, this people group, this Israelite people group of common descent will not pass away until this is all accomplished. That's the point of the word generation, Ganea. He is not saying all you who are alive at the same time as me won't pass away till this is finished. He said, you Israelites, you nation of Israel, you people group that God has chosen of all the people on the earth won't pass away till this is finished. And then that is the context for verse 36. But of that day and hour knows no one, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. That verse is very often applied to the rapture of the church. And people say, well, nobody knows when the rapture is because Jesus said no man knows the day or hour. But contextually, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about that moment in time when the sun and moon go out, Stars are darkened, sign of the Son of Man in the sky, the beginning of this time of, of the outpouring of God's wrath on the planet. He said, nobody knows what time that's going to be. So, look at this whole thing in context. He began by saying, here's the parable of the fig tree. You can see certain signs and know it's close, even at the door, but nobody knows the exact day and hour. So you can read the signs, you can pay attention, you can be aware, and you can get some sense of it's coming close, coming especially close when you see what's happening in the heavens, but you can't set dates and say, oh, I know exactly when it's coming. Oh, this is the end of the world. Oh, this is the date. This is... What he's saying is the season is changing. Right. Things are about to change. Of that day and of that hour knows no man, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone... For the coming of the Son of Man is going to be just like the days of Noah. This is the next passage where people try to insert a rapture idea, a rapture concept. Because Jesus explains it this way. Verse 37, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in the days which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking and they were marrying and they were giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. (coughs) Then there shall be two men in a field, one will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken. One will be left. And so people say, oh, there's the rapture. There's two people in a field. One's taken. The other's left. It would have been really helpful at this point if somebody had said, where? Where are they taken? Well, quite fortunately for us, that question does get asked. And Luke recounts it for us in the parallel passage. Turn over to the book of Luke for a moment. Luke 17 in specific, I do believe. Luke 17, this is in the exact same context. 
starting around verse 26. Just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it shall also happen in the days of the Son of Man. Now he describes how it is. What's the connection? What's the similarity? Well, they were eating and they were drinking. They were marrying. They were being given in marriage. These are all things that are forward thinking, that are all looking forward to the future. These are all things that are anticipating what's going to happen in the future. And yet, even though they had all these plans for the future, they didn't see the destruction coming until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as what happened in the days of Lot. This is Sodom and Gomorrah now. They were eating and they were drinking and they were buying and they were selling and they were planting and they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, It rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. And it'll be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. Now, there are folk who who take those examples of Noah in the ark or Lot leaving Sodom, and they try to impose rapture concepts there as well. And they'll say, well, see... What happened in those events was that first God took his own out, Noah, and his family took them out, and then the destruction fell. Or first he took Lot out, an angel took him by the hand, Lot and his family and his wife, and they got out, and then the destruction fell. Therefore, what Jesus is saying is first the rapture happens, and then the destruction happens, except that's not what Jesus said. I only care what he said. He told us what the connection is. He was real specific what the connection is. The comparison that he made between Noah and Lot and his return is very specific. That they won't see it coming. That they're busy looking forward. They're busy marrying, giving in marriage, making their plans, buying, selling, trading, doing all the stuff that is looking forward to the future. And then sudden destruction happens. He's emphasizing the suddenness of his return. Even though they can see the signs, no man knows the day or the hour. It's going to happen instantaneously. So much so that Paul writing to the Thessalonians, and we did look at this last week, so we won't turn to it. He described the day of the Lord like a thief in the night. And said, if you know when the thief is coming, you'll stay awake and watch so that you don't get robbed. But the day of the Lord comes like a thief in the night. And then makes the distinction and says, but it doesn't come on you because you're not in the night. You're children of light. You're children of the day. Therefore, watch and be careful. But it comes on them, and he uses the specific term, it comes on them as sudden destruction. So Paul and Jesus are saying the exact same thing, which is the day of the Lord comes suddenly and destructively the same way that the people in Noah's day didn't get it until the day he went into the ark and they were all washed away. The same way that the people in Sodom and Gomorrah didn't get it until the day that Lot left and then they were destroyed. That's the point that Jesus is making is the suddenness of his return. But then he continues. Verse 31. And on that day, let no one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house go down and take them. And likewise, let not the one who is in the field turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life shall lose it. 
and whoever loses his life shall preserve it. I tell you, on that night, there will be two men in one bed. One will be taken, the other will be left. There will also be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken, the other will be left. Then a parenthetical verse that actually isn't in the oldest manuscripts that says two men will be in a field, one will be taken, and the other will be left. That is in Matthew, and so it's a legitimate statement. The oldest versions of Luke don't include that, but look at verse 37. Fortunately, at this point, his disciples who were listening to him ask the very intelligent question, where? Where, Lord? Because he has just told them, two people, one's taken, the others left. Now, there are people, you can find them online, who, because this verse might undermine their eschatology, have postulated that the question, where, Lord, was the apostles asking, where are they left? Because one's taken and the other's left. Where are they left? I don't think that's what the question was because we know where they're left. They're in the field, they're in the bed, they're on the housetop. We know where they are. We know where they're left. The question is, where are they taken? Where are these people taken? Notice his answer. He does not say, taken to meet me in the clouds of the air, the way that Paul will describe the rapture event. Here's what he says to them. Wherever the body is, wherever the carcass is, that's where the vultures are going to be gathered. There's a hard answer. He isn't talking rapture at all here. He says wherever they're taken, they're taken to the place where there's going to be bodies and there's going to be carrion birds and they're going to eat their flesh. Now that same verse, that same statement does appear in Matthew 24 and we read it a couple of weeks ago. Verse 28, wherever the corpse is, the vultures will gather. But Luke takes the time to put it in its context as the answer to the question, where are they taken? So both Matthew and Luke include it, and when we ran into it in Matthew, we looked at the fact that Ezekiel predicts exactly that event, when God is going to gather the armies, the kings of the earth, and then get the, the animals, get the carrion birds, and make a feast for them of corpses. The book of Revelation describes it again as an event that occurs as part of the Armageddon War. So when Jesus, in the context of talking about the time of trouble, such as never was, ever would be again, a time of destruction, but you, this generation, this people group, you're going to survive all the way through it. In that context, he says, and there are going to be two people, one taken and the other left, one taken and the other left, and the answer to where is they're taken to the war. They're taken to the Armageddon. The whole of Matthew 24 is about God's judgment, sudden return, time of tribulation, day of the Lord, destruction, destruction, destruction. Nowhere in Matthew 24 do I find a positive comment about a rapture. That's really my point. That's really all I was driving at today, is that if we just let Jesus speak, he's talking about judgment, judgment, judgment. So we'll pick up there because verse 42 starts with, therefore, be on the alert, for you don't know the day in which your Lord is coming. And then he's going to give them examples and the parables of the virgins and all that. But this is a good natural place to stop because next Sunday, David Morris will be standing here. 
So you'll have to hang on to all the Matthew 24 stuff for another week after that, and then we'll get into verse 42. Now, to the visitors, I know that was all really heavy stuff, and thank you for hanging with us. Sometimes Bible study can be kind of thick and heavy. This week, we will not be meeting here on Wednesday night because the conference is happening up in Gladeville. Starts Tuesday night, goes all day Wednesday, all day Thursday, all day Friday. The schedule is up on my blog. You can go there and find the schedule. I'm teaching Wednesday morning, Thursday morning, and Friday morning. And after everything we talked about this morning, guess what subject they assigned to me this year at the conference? Jesus as judge. So at this moment, my head is kind of full of the Jesus as judge material. And it just happened providentially that we're in Matthew 24 at this moment. But you know... The whole concept of judgment, judgment, judgment that pervades the Old Testament and this part of Matthew, I hope if you come away with nothing else, if you haven't heard or understood or cared about anything else I've said today, including the calendar stuff, if you're still upset about Lent, if you're still thinking Brussels sprouts, if you can't get anything else from today, recognize that the only God that you find in the Bible, the only God that you find in history anywhere, is a God who is perfectly willing to defend his own righteousness and his own holiness, and that is the basis for his judgment. His judgment is dependent on the fact that he is, in fact, so holy and so righteous that he hates sin in all instances, in all places, and as the world becomes increasingly sinful and depraved and God-hating, there is going to come a time when God says, enough and he's going to judge know that about the God of the Bible because when I say you need Jesus that's why I'm saying it because you're dealing with a God who is perfectly willing to judge and condemn people he's perfectly willing to defend his own righteous holy standard my point is my very long and belabored point is Only in Christ is there escape from that judgment. And that's why Christianity is so important. That's why Christianity is so vital. Christianity is not about improving your life here and now. Jesus is not a cool t-shirt. And Jesus is not a trendy thing. Jesus is the only escape from eternal judgment. And that is an act of phenomenal grace. Because God is not under any obligation to save anybody. But he saves particular people through the finished work that his son, Christ, has accomplished. And by his grace, he offers time and time again the escape. Come to Christ. And that is why we do what we do here. That is why we teach the whole counsel of God and the whole of the Bible. Is because when you really understand it in some depth... You understand the kind of God you're dealing with, and you understand the phenomenal grace that would allow anybody to stand in his presence and be accepted. That's an astounding thing. And that's what we're trying to tell people. All right? Yes, sir. Then we're actually done for the morning. 
Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And join us next time as we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.